Staying safe, macroeconomically, from American public media, this is Marketplace. In Los Angeles, I'm Kai Rizdal. It is Thursday today. This one is the 3rd of March. Good as always to have you along, everybody. You know, there are some things that happen when things like what's happening now happen. Bear with me on this one, would you? Things like economic dislocation and supply chain tangles and higher prices on basically everything because things are just more risky. Physically risky, sure, yes, depending on where you are but also financially risky. And when things get risky, as we all know, people look for sanctuaries, safe havens, if you will, for themselves and for their money. And the safest of financial safe places is bonds, U.S. government bonds specifically, something we have been seeing in the week or so that Russia's been at war in Ukraine. So Marketplace's Savannah Marr gets us going with that flight to safety and what it can tell us. Investors can handle some measure of volatility and risk. It's when there's deep uncertainty about the direction of the whole economy that some start moving into the treasury market. I mean, it's basically what human beings have been doing since we've been living in the caves. Paolo Pasquariello is a professor of finance at the University of Michigan. Every time there is any form of risk, like we see a dinosaur approaching the cave, well, we store our goods in the safest place that we have. Right now, the dinosaur is the war in Ukraine, and that safe haven is the U.S. bond market. And so you park your money there, waiting for better times to invest. We don't know how the war in Ukraine will unfold, how long it will last, or what all the economic effects will be. That's what investors are reacting to, says Winnie Caesar, global head of strategy for credit sites. We have a highly inflationary event, especially with commodity prices and energy prices which could cause consumers to change their habits. Saving more, not spending as much, which could ultimately lead to a deceleration in growth. Caesar says investors are switching gears from taking risks to grow their investments to guarding against loss. So what makes U.S. Treasury bonds a safer bet? Lawrence Gillum is a fixed income strategist with LPL Financial. The U.S. is not going to default on its debt. And it is a global market. So anywhere anyone has any sort of uh, concerns about equity markets or the economy, the U.S. Treasury market is the destination to go. And Gillum says investors flock to bonds because of their liquidity. It's fairly easy to get your money out when the tides change. I'm Savannah Marr for Marketplace. You want to know why the politicization of the debt limit is such a big deal and why we talk about it all the time when it comes up on Capitol Hill? That whole story right there that Savannah just did. That's why. On Wall Street today, quality is maybe not a word I would use. We'll have the details when we do the numbers. Most of the talk about Ukraine the past couple of months has been of its strategic value in the geopolitical tug-of-war between NATO and Russia. Less well-known is its economic importance. Agriculture, for sure, which we have talked about. Also, though, over the past couple of years, Ukraine has become a key part of the global technology economy. 
Last year, it exported almost $7 billion in technology services, a third more than the year before. Its engineering and computer science workforce and, to be clear, its comparatively low wages have made it a go-to. So when Russia invaded, it wasn't just countries that went on high alert. Companies did, too, as Marketplace's Stephanie Hughes tells us. The startup JustAnswer.com has its headquarters in San Francisco, but a quarter of its workforce is in Ukraine. So the company's been preparing for the possibility of war for years. We had a system, sort of a DEFCON 1, 2, 3, 4, 5 kind of a system. Andy Kurtzig is the CEO of Just Answer. The company connects users who have questions to experts who can answer them. Its 252 employees in Ukraine do everything from engineering to design to HR. And Kurtzig wanted to be prepared for an invasion. That involved all kinds of things. In advance, it was things like printing out documents so that we'd have a backup of employment agreements and lease agreements and things like that, backing up all of our data to U.S. servers. Just Answer also helped relocate employees who wanted to move to safer parts of the country and is giving them as much paid time off as they need. At the same time he's worrying about his employees, Kurtzig has to think about his company, too, and its plans to eventually go public. It hurts. It hurts. And it will slow us down. That's the kind of stuff that is unfortunately may get cut temporarily, right, is some of the IPO preparedness stuff that we've been doing. Big American tech companies, including Snap, Lyft, Microsoft, and Google, all have employees in Ukraine, as do companies all over the world. Wix has its headquarters in Tel Aviv. It helps people build their own websites, and 15% of its workforce is in Ukraine. Nir Zohar is its president and COO. He says a few weeks ago, We approached about 30 or 40 employees who were kind of the critical functions that we knew we could not replicate outside of Ukraine and ask them if they will be willing to move to Krakow in Poland. They were. Wix then chartered flights to move other employees and their families to Turkey. Now, with Ukrainian airspace closed, Wix employees are meeting their Ukrainian colleagues at the Polish border with things like food and clothing. This all costs money, of course. But, Zohar says... This is not the time to count the, the dimes. Companies with employees or contractors in Ukraine should be prepared to not be able to talk to them, says Chester Wisniewski with the security firm Sophos. Communications infrastructure is, is struggling to stay online, and there have been continuous disruptions in both internet and mobile phone technology around the country. Wisniewski says we're all used to being able to communicate instantaneously. And we have no experience at knowing what it's like when some arm of the internet is cut off. Many tech workers in Ukraine are continuing to just do their jobs wherever they are, if they can. For Ukrainian economy and for us as a country, it's of course very important also to keep the economy going. That's Natalie Viramiva. She's the director of Tech Ukraine, a group devoted to growing the industry there. She lives alone in her apartment in Kiev. And since she can't really do her regular job, she's working with a group that's making sure the rest of the world understands what's going on in Ukraine. The distinguished feature of Ukrainians is self-organization. So, like, you see uh, that there is uh, some area that needs to be covered. You gather um, your like-minders and you start doing. Viramiva says that can-do mindset will help Ukrainians get through this time and hopefully protect the country's future. I'm Stephanie Hughes for Marketplace.
Okay, so let's do this by way of setting up Mitchell Hartman here for this next story, excluding the realities of what's happening in Ukraine. Let's do a quick tick through of American domestic economic particulars, okay? Inflation, yes, so stipulated, of course, but there ends really the bad news. And I'm looking in particular here at the American labor market, which for all the global unease is doing pretty darn well. We get the February jobs report tomorrow. January, you might remember, was solid, and that's putting it mildly. More than 450,000 new jobs, unemployment at just 4%. Workers also returning to the labor force. And that, remember, was when Omicron was going strong. Millions of people were out sick, and some businesses temporarily had to close their doors because they didn't have staff. So here's Mitchell on the short-term future of jobs in this economy. There is plenty to worry about in the U.S. economy. Inflation, supply chains, maybe another bad COVID variant will hit. I know there are many things going on in the world, but right now the labor market, I'm incredibly optimistic. Elise Gould at the Economic Policy Institute says when the pandemic started two years ago, there was every reason to think it would be at least as bad as the Great Recession. We lost 22 million jobs in two months. And since then, we have seen a tremendous bounce back. And we have added back in about nine out of 10 jobs lost. Meanwhile, first-time jobless claims have fallen back to pre-pandemic levels, while job openings are way higher, says economist Robert Frick at Navy Federal Credit Union. There's a much higher demand for workers now. Layoffs have gone down so much, and I expect they're going to continue dropping. And that will really show how the jobs economy is ramping up even more. Frick says the unpredictable war in Ukraine does pose a big economic risk. But he says the predictable decline in COVID cases matters more for U.S. businesses, consumers and workers right now. The lack of Omicron is a much stronger positive to the U.S. economy than What happens in Ukraine is a negative, at least if it doesn't really escalate. Increasingly, what we're seeing is a return to labor market normal, says Tulane University economist Gary Hoover. One example, labor force participation has been ticking up in recent months. With more states and cities lifting COVID restrictions, we're seeing people able to send the kids back to school and then look to re-enter the job force. If the past few months are any guide, tomorrow's employment report may disappoint on job creation, only to be revised upwards later, says Robert Frick. These first jobs reports have been fantastically inaccurate. Are people really working? Are they really furloughed? So we have to take the labor report first read with a huge grain of salt. With my salt shaker at the ready, I'm Mitchell Hartman for Marketplace. Coming up. If they look like students, I'm going to assume they're students. Yeah, me too. But first, let's do the numbers. Dow Industrials off 96 points today, three tenths percent, closed at 33,794. Relatively calm day for the blue chips. NASDAQ, though, dropped 214 points, 1.6%, 13,537. The SP 500 shaved off 23 points, about a half percent. 
43 and 63. As we just heard from Mitchell, some good news on the job front. Also, I should say, I would be remiss if I didn't mention this, first-time claims for jobless benefits, because today's Thursday, down again. So looking at some HR stocks, how about that? K-Force, up five-tenths percent, half percent is another way to say that. Corn Ferry gained three-tenths of one percent. Paycom Software, though, sank 4.2 percent. A growing list of state, cities, and jurisdictions are lifting mask mandates this week after the CDC shifted its guidelines. So, a couple of makers of N95 masks, Honeywell, up six-tenths percent. Kimberly Clark and 3M, both rose seven-tenths of one percent. Savannah Mar was talking about flight to safety there at the top of the program. Well, bonds. How about that? The prices rose, right? It means a lot of people are buying bonds, supply demand, right? Demand is up. Prices up, right? Yields fall when that happens. Ten-year Tino down to 1.83%. You're listening to Marketplace. This episode of APM Marketplace is brought to you by Super Pumped, the battle for Uber, the new Showtime series from the creators of Billions. Based on a true story, strap in for Travis Kalanick's wild ride through Silicon Valley with VC Bill Gurley and board member Ariana Huffington riding shotgun. Driven by disruption, Travis takes a win-at-all-costs approach to transform Uber into a multi-billion dollar tech titan that changes the world. But every surge comes at a price. Joseph Gordon-Levitt, Kyle Chandler, and Uma Thurman's star in Super Pumped, The Battle for Uber, now streaming only on Showtime. Each week, the New Yorker Radio Hour unpacks what's happening in a very complicated world. You'll hear from the New Yorker's award-winning reporters and thinkers on topics including race and justice, American history, challenges to democracy, climate change, and more. To get context behind events on the news, listen to the New Yorker Radio Hour wherever you get your podcasts. This is Marketplace. I'm Kai Rizdahl. These are, one imagines, lousy times to be running a business in Russia. The ruble has cratered, ATMs are emptied anyway, and consumer confidence over there cannot possibly be all that high. These are, we know for sure, lousy times to be running a Russian business in the United States. Companies and consumers are boycotting all kinds of Russian goods, and in the hospitality business in particular, bars and restaurants, I mean, this is an awkward time to go for blini and caviar. Marketplace's Kristen Schwab made some calls. When I asked Michael Von Schatz what time I should stop by his restaurant for an interview, he told me any time was fine because he didn't expect to be very busy. And he's right. I arrive at Russian Samovar in Manhattan's theater district during the usually buzzing post-work pre-Broadway show hour. Just a few people sip cocktails at the bar. Business dipped pretty much overnight. On Friday, we had 20 uh, cancellations. Bar was empty. Saturday, same. Empty, dead, desolate. Russian Samovar is the kind of place where you come for the borscht and stay for the party. It's known for its infused vodkas and live music. But as you can imagine these days, no one is in a celebratory mood. Not Ukrainians, not Russians, not tourists. Because there's Russian in the name, they think they're supporting an evil. When we're not. We opened up this place as a haven for those that defected and those that were kicked out. The restaurant opened in 1986, before the collapse of the Soviet Union. Von Schatz's grandfather started it with two famous Soviet immigrants, Joseph Brodsky, the exiled Nobel-winning poet, and Mikhail Baryshnikov, a renowned ballet dancer who defected. Von Schatz was born in California. His mother is Russian, his father's Ukrainian, and much of his staff is Ukrainian too. He's worried people gloss over all that. He pulls out his phone and opens Google. It typed in Russian samovar. And then you go down, and then you start seeing this. Pictures of war-torn Ukraine. Then you go into the reviews, 
seven hours ago. Stop the war. What is not the answer? We have nothing to do with this. The reviews have since been taken down. But to put it bluntly, Russian Samovar has a bit of a PR problem. People have asked me to take the name Russian off of Samovar. And I said, we've done this for 35 years. I'm not going to take the word Russian off. Other business owners are grappling with the same decision. In Austin, Texas, Varda Monomor has renamed her restaurant. The Russian house is now the house. Because right now the name itself brings people pain. And if it just brings the relief to anyone in this world, it's worth of doing it. This is a little controversial. On the restaurant's Facebook page, some people are celebrating the change. Others worry it only solidifies the narrative that Russian-Americans support the Russian government. Monomore says she simply wants to make it clear that her restaurant is a safe space for all Eastern Europeans. In San Francisco, modern Russian restaurant Birch and Rye has also become a safe space for dialogue. Anya El-Watar is the owner. Our diners have been able to distinguish between the actions of the Russian government and the Russian culture and people. But there's definitely a lot of questions. Questions about the war, about the restaurant's stance, and whether it will stop serving Russian imports. The answer is yes. She's stopped serving Russian vodka and caviar because of her objection to the war, even though sourcing similar high-quality caviar has been tough. She says she welcomes customers' curiosity about what's happening in Ukraine and about the history and the culture post-Soviet states share. That is the whole spirit behind this restaurant, to create the space where people will come together and talk about shared human values. Conversations that are perhaps a little easier when paired with cabbage rolls. I'm Kristen Schwab for Marketplace. President Biden spent a good chunk of his State of the Union the other night talking about his $2 trillion Build Back Better plan without actually saying Build Back Better. One key part of the thing is the really popular idea with both Republicans and Democrats, by the way, of paid family leave. Nine states and Washington, D.C. currently have it. The political opposition is usually grounded in the costs for businesses, particularly small businesses. But as Marketplace's Megan McCarty-Carino reports, that does seem to be changing. Paid family leave can be tough for small businesses. You're down a person on an already tight staff. Melissa Wirt runs an e-commerce business in Virginia with 45 employees. If things go awry in the warehouse or enough people go on maternity leave, our media buyer or our accountant Those individuals and those employees are going to be in the warehouse picking orders. But she knows the benefits of having a parent-friendly workplace. Her business is called Latched Mama and sells clothing for nursing moms. So she offers paid family leave. You're really going to see rewards on the other side in terms of of a different type of employee that comes back. And while not all small businesses are as focused on parents as Wurtz is, they all face costs and benefits when it comes to paid family leave. Jane Waldfogel at Columbia School of Social Work says the pandemic has shifted the balance of how some businesses see these trade-offs. We're in a particular moment right now when they're even more likely to be supportive now than they were in the past because they're coming out of this experience during COVID. 
Waldfogel co-authored a recent paper that found support for paid family leave during the pandemic jumped from 60 to 70 percent among small businesses in New York and New Jersey. Both states offer the benefit, and during lockdowns and school closures, more employees had to take advantage of it. Now, employers of all sizes are increasingly facing pressure to provide more parental benefits themselves, says Betsy Stevenson, an economist at the University of Michigan. In a tight labor market, you see employers become quite creative in trying to think about ways to attract and keep people. A federal paid leave policy would free employers up to compete on other benefits. I'm Megan McCarty-Carino for Marketplace. One of the things that happens, just to harken back to the top of the program, when there is instability and chaos to some degree like there is now, is that decision-making becomes really, really important. The risks are high, there is lives on the line, and there is money on the line. So a lesson now on relatively low-stakes decision-making from a recent transplant to London. My name is Mauricio Olivares. I'm a research associate at University College London. My area of research broadly lies in econometrics, which is the intersection between statistics and economics. So the first day that I, that I rode my bike in London, I was, first of all, very excited, but also a little bit scared. I had planned my, my route a little bit. However, there are so many things that you need to take into account. It's a big city, a lot of cars, buses, pedestrians. And on top of that, the extra layer of difficulty in my case was that this thing of leaning on the left. I knew in general, I had an idea of where I needed to go, but because I couldn't be checking my phone constantly, I I looked at other cyclists that were next to me and then I said, okay, this person looks like they might be going to where I'm going because they look like students. And this is where a big university in London is. So I'm just going to follow them. My rule of thumb was, if they look like students, I'm going to assume they're students. And then I, I just started riding behind these two guys who were in front of me. There was a time when they made a left, so I made a left, and then a right, and so on. And then at some point I realized that they were actually on campus, and I was like, okay, this worked. <laughs> these people took me to my final destination, and I, I'm still alive. What I did is something that decision makers have at their disposal, something called heuristics. Simply put, heuristics are mental shortcuts, rules of thumb that people use to make decisions faster. I think the origin of the word heuristics comes from Greek eureka. You know, when you have this eureka moment. Suppose that, I don't know, you want to decide where to invest your your money. Calculating all the potential risks and all the returns of, of a certain investment, maybe that is something that you don't have all the information. One thing you can do is to follow what others do in a way that if someone that has been successful following certain investment strategy, you can think of, oh, this person probably knows something that I don't know, so I'm just going to follow them. In this particular case, when I was riding my bike, 
my representation heuristic was they look like students. I'm going to assume they're students. It is very likely that they go to the same destination. Now, one thing that I, I, I have to emphasize is that this kind of rules of thumb often also induce biases. They work on average, but that doesn't mean that they will work always. I don't know if I was lucky or if my guess was a very educated one, uh, probably because I've, I've been a student for so long that now I can pin down exactly what a student looks like. But if I were to repeat this strategy every day, perhaps I will find myself making more mistakes than not. Mauricio Olivares riding his bike to work at University College London. This final note on the way out today, I kind of love this one. Maybe you saw it because I think it made the rounds yesterday. It was on Business Insider, an announcement from the Ukrainian National Agency on Corruption Prevention to Ukrainians who have been able to snag Russian military equipment. We've all seen those videos, right? Anyway, here is what the Ukrainian government says. Have you captured a Russian tank or armored personnel carrier and are worried about how to declare it? Keep calm and continue to defend the motherland. There is no need to declare the captured Russian tanks and other equipment, the agency says. The seizure will be considered a manifestation of the unity and cohesion of the Ukrainian people in the fight against invaders. No taxes due. All right, we got to go, though. Here is your moment of economic context. This one is, more properly, maybe there is not a price at which anything will sell, if you've got a file folder for that. Remember I told you the other day about Russian Urals, their crude oil benchmark, and how it's being discounted 18 bucks off the global benchmark Brent crude? Now, $22 off and dropping. Amir Bibawe, John Buckley, Eve Epstein, John Gordon, Rick Carr, Diantha Parker, and Amanda Peacher are the Marketplace editing staff. I'm Kai Rizdal. We will see you tomorrow, everybody. This is APM. Funding the Ukrainian fight against Russia using cryptocurrency. From American Public Media, this is Marketplace Tech. I'm Kimberly Adams. War is not only costly in terms of lives lost and families uprooted, but it also just costs feeding soldiers, military equipment and ammunition, supporting displaced people. That's one of the reasons the U.S. and Ukraine's allies are imposing economic sanctions on Russia to cut off funds for war. But it's costing Ukraine as well. Last Saturday, Ukrainian leaders tweeted that the country was accepting donations in the form of cryptocurrency to support its military defense against Russia. As of today, the country has amassed at least $42 million in cryptocurrency, according to the research firm Elliptic. Marketplace's Savannah Marr reports. The Ukrainian government's appeal for direct donations is unusual. 
says economist Ishwar Prasad with the Brookings Institution. It's certainly not common for a government to crowdfund. What isn't surprising, Prasad says, is that Kiev is turning to cryptocurrencies. Ukraine has been at the forefront of the development of uh, many aspects of cryptocurrencies. He says Ukraine conducts a lot of trade using crypto and recently passed a law legalizing and regulating its use within the country. So I suppose it's a natural extension that at a time like this, they would use any possible means to raise financing, including through cryptocurrencies. Prasad says there are advantages to raising money this way. Unlike traditional aid from other nations or NGOs, deposits into the country's crypto wallets can be spent quickly and without restrictions. That can be appealing to donors, too, says Marav Zair, a blockchain expert at Rutgers Business School. I think from a donor perspective, it's instant. You know, if you really want to help people right away, then you can do it. And there's another advantage for those who might fear retaliation from, say, the Russian government. If the donor wants to stay anonymous, then that is a perfect way to do that. Zara says crypto crowdfunding could play a major role in the future of foreign aid, something William Luther at Florida Atlantic University says we should keep an eye on. Because the same lack of restrictions that allows donations to be spent quickly can also lead to ethical concerns. You're relinquishing ownership to those funds, and the recipient can use them however they please. That means that the recipient might use those funds in ways that you don't actually approve of. He says if Ukraine can solicit anonymous donations to fund its military operations with no strings attached, then so too can Russia. Or any other government. That's Marketplace's Savannah Marr. For the latest tally on how much the Ukrainian government has raised from its crypto callout, Elliptic is tracking that and some of the sources of the largest donations. We'll have a link on our website, marketplacetech.org. And the Ukrainian government expanded the list of the types of crypto it will take. CNBC reports the Ukrainians are now accepting Dogecoin as well, and we'll link to that story. Like Savannah said, Russia could also raise funds via crypto. And as Vice reports, that has some U.S. senators worried Russia will use cryptocurrencies in its attempts to evade sanctions. Senators including Elizabeth Warren, Mark Warner, Sherrod Brown, and Jack Reed sent a letter to Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen on Wednesday asking if Treasury has the tools it needs to catch such behavior. Now, before we go, we'd like your help with some stories that we're working on related to credit scores. You know, the numbers calculated by an algorithm that can affect major aspects of your financial life. We want to hear your stories about your numbers, how you got them, how you feel about them, and what you want to know about what goes into them. You can email us at mptech at marketplace.org or go to marketplace.org slash the score. I'm Kimberly Adams, and that's Marketplace Tech. This is APM.